0: Good evening, welcome to tonight's webinar. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. So excited to have you all join us for tonight's conversation on election reform in the midterm elections. We have an incredible panel of speakers joining us this evening, and I'm so excited to see so many friends of Sphere and the Sphere Education Initiative here in the conversation tonight. A couple of very quick housekeeping items uh, to begin with as normal. Please make sure that your name in the chat list uh, or your name in the uh, registration list here matches the name that you signed up for for the event so we can make sure to get your professional development certificate out to you after the event tonight also wanted to make sure to remind you all that we'll be taking q a for this conversation put your questions in the chat throughout and we'll be capturing those and bringing them back for our panelists Tonight's conversation is going to be an exciting one. We have, a, like I mentioned, an incredible group of uh, speakers joining us for our panel conversation on election reform. We'll be taking a close look at the Electoral Count Act, uh, its history, some of the impact it played in the 2020 election, and legislative efforts to engage the reform on that act in the, the last several years and where things stand going forward. Then, in addition to that, I'm really excited to be joined by Dave Olson from Retro Report, who will be sharing a little bit of their research. Resources, as they have to do with the midterm elections of their films and resources and other excellent materials. So thrilled to have you all here. Uh, with that, let me go ahead and introduce our panelists this evening. Very excited to be joined first by Andy Craig. He's the director of election policy at the Rainey Center and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. In fact, his first day today is at the Rainey Center uh, and just left us at the Cato Institute as of yesterday. Uh, Andy's work focuses on election law, electoral reform, and political incentives with the goal of reducing polarization and improving representative government. His analysis and recommendations for reforming the electoral count act have been cited by members of both parties on the floor of the House of Representatives and in the Senate Rules Committee. His work has appeared in outlets including The Washington Post, Fox News, The Nation, and Politico, and he writes regularly for The Daily Beast and The Unpopulist. He's also written on topics including political theory, the libertarian movement, and American history for libertarianism.org. Kevin Kozar, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the U.S. Congress, the administrative state, American politics, election reform, and the U.S. Postal Service. Widely published in uh, a whole variety of different exciting and interesting books. But before his time at AEI, Dr. Kozar was at the R Street Institute, where he served as Vice President of Policy, Vice President of Research Partnerships, and Senior Fellow and Director of the Governance Project. He also co-founded the Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group. LegBranch.org, a transpartisan project to strengthen the legislative rights. Also joining us tonight is Geneviève Nadeau, is Counsel at Protect Democracy, where she leads the team focused on securing accountability for abuses of power and violations of the rule of law using a combination of strategic litigation, policy advocacy, and communications. She also leads policy development for the National Task Force on Election Crises and is a lecturer at Harvard Law School, where she co-teaches the Democracy and the Rule of Law Clinic. Jean Via previously served at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, where she held several leadership roles, including Chief of Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and in private practice. She is a graduate of UMass Amherst and Stanford Law School. Panelists, thank you so much for joining us this evening. What I wanted to do is spend the the first handful of minutes with each of you, helping us walk through some of the background history and some of the important pieces of what's happening with election reform, in particular, thinking about the role that the Electoral Count Act has played in that. Andy, I'd I'd love to turn to you first. Uh, could you share with us, sir, some of the the background? Where does the Electoral Count Act come from? What's some of its relevant history, and uh, how does it impact what we're doing today?
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks, Alan. And uh, thanks everyone for uh, joining us here on your uh, Tuesday evening. Um, Well, like most things, uh, it starts in 1787 at Philadelphia. Um, The founding fathers were uh, debating uh, when they were drafting the Constitution, uh, how we're going to pick the president. um, And even though the electoral college is uh, controversial these days, most of the things we debate about it now um, weren't super on their mind or they didn't foresee them, um, their main concern uh, and what they saw as the, the way forward was they wanted an independent executive. They wanted checks and balances. They wanted the president to not be picked by Congress. Um, but it was a complicated question of how are we going to do this across a sprawling nation when you know the fastest anything can move is on horseback. Um, so what they came up with is this kind of pop-up fourth branch of government uh, the Electoral College that uh, it convenes every four years. Each state picks uh, its actual electors who are real people who meet in their state capitals. Um, they vote. The Constitution uh, sets out some pretty detailed requirements about how exactly they're supposed to sign and certify their votes um, and who they can vote for and some other things. Um, but unhelpfully, uh, it then simply says they're supposed to send their votes to the president of the Senate, who's the vice president. Uh, and then, then the vice president is supposed to uh, open and count them in front of both houses of Congress. Um, does not say, you know, it, some of the teachers uh, might appreciate this. It slips into the passive voice very unhelpfully uh, when it says the votes shall then be counted. It does not say who counts the votes. It does not provide any uh, details um, it doesn't say who gets to decide any disputes about it. Um, and so this, for the most part, kind of clutched along. There were some tweaks with the 12th Amendment, but for the most part, that process all stayed the same and the relevant language was kept. Um, and there weren't uh, very many huge disputes uh, in the kind of the antebellum period over uh, which votes to count, what's valid, um, Is there any you know dispute that could decide the election. Um, for the most part, and Congress just kind of winged it more or less in um, and, and following rules for the joint session that uh, they they would pass usually as a rules resolution um, every four years. Um, but then the Civil War uh, happened, and in particularly during Reconstruction, there were uh, a lot of disputes over who is the legitimate state government. Um, there were some states where you had two people both claiming to be the real governor. Um, There were disputes over if a state had been readmitted to the union and what exactly does that mean and who gets to decide it. Um, So there was a flurry of a lot of uh, novel questions about how Congress uh, is supposed to count electoral votes. In 1872, for example, um, Horace Greeley uh, was the Democratic slash liberal Republican candidate uh, he lost in a landslide, but then he died uh, a month after election day before the Electoral College had voted. Um, three electors tried to vote for him anyway. Uh, Congress said, no, that doesn't count. A dead man's not eligible to be president. You can't vote for him. Um, but it didn't matter because he had he, he had lost in a landslide. Um, but then four years later uh, it was the big blow up in the 1876 election. Uh, It was razor thin between uh, Hayes as the Republican and Tilden, the Democrat. Um, Tilden won the popular vote officially, um, but it was, I mean, this was during the uh, kind of when the Redeemers were coming to power across the South and uh, the the beginnings of reestablishing white supremacist rule across the South. There was a lot of terrorism. There was a lot of vote suppression. The, the. Plan and that sort of thing was very active. So there were a lot of disputes from these states. um, And it ended up being that there were 20 electoral votes in dispute which would decide the election uh, depending on which ones Congress counted, uh, you know, which which claimant governor they recognized as having the power to certify these votes. Um, Nobody really knew what to do. Um, It very nearly reignited the civil war. Um, Tilden or blood was the rallying cry uh from the democrats and so congress threw together this ad hoc commission that consisted of five members from both chambers and five supreme court justices and the intent was that it was going to be seven republicans seven democrats and uh the one true independent whose position was unknown as one of the supreme court justices um but then the democrats uh got a little bit greedy. They thought they would uh, influence the outcome by electing that one independent justice to uh, the Senate, uh, which didn't work because he immediately resigned to take his Senate seat. Um, So there was only other Republicans left on the Supreme Court. So you ended up with a series of eight, seven party line votes, um, and then it went to Congress. And Congress only affirmed the result a couple of days uh, before Inauguration Day, which was in March then. and and the compromise, There's it's debated how exactly accurate this is, but it's widely seen that this compromise uh, resulted in the end of Reconstruction and abandoning the South to Jim Crow for the next uh, better part of a century. Um, 10 years or so after this, it took them a long time, uh, but everybody agreed this was not a good system. Uh, this is not uh, a fiasco we should repeat. Um, so Congress passed uh, the Electoral Count Act in 1887. And it was uh, well-intentioned. Uh, it, it was supposed to set out some normal rules, known in advance, procedures, rules of procedure for the joint session of Congress, details about um, how states are supposed to certify their electoral votes. Um, and then, for the most part, it kind of got forgotten. Um, it wasn't until 1969 that an objection was uh, raised and debated under the ECA. Um, And that was a minor technical thing, a question about a faithless elector who had uh, voted for the wrong candidate. Um, And then again, it didn't happen uh, until 2005. Uh, In terms, I should clarify, it takes one senator and one representative under the status quo to do that. So uh, there were other attempts by House members that didn't have a Senate co-sponsor. But they didn't happen where you get the two hours of debate and vote on it again in 2005. There was a protest uh, raised by the Democrats against uh, Bush's votes in Ohio, um, there was uh, there were other attempts uh, over the years, but uh, in recent years, um, and then it really led into you know what happened in 2020. And I'll uh, leave that for my co-panelists, but that's basically the background on how we got here uh, to the status quo and the history behind why we have the Electoral Count Act um, and. How it was really ignored and didn't matter for a very long time until all of a sudden it mattered a lot.
0: <laughs> Andy, thanks so much for that background in history. I think it's a uh, it was one of those sorts of things that you you learn about in passing in in U.S. history for for quite a while, right? You learn a little bit about it and maybe you don't hear anything else about it. Uh, until the last couple of years. So that, that actually turns me to our next question. Uh, Kevin, I wonder if you might walk us through what, what's made this so pressing, right? So with the election of 2020 and then the events around the presidential certification and the aftermath of that on January 6th, we, we've we seen a, a significantly greater interest in both the Electoral Count Act and, and just what happened. Uh, so if you would please uh, walk us through a little bit about uh, what happened in that space and uh, were well, the interesting questions that that raised.
2: Sure, sure. Well, as kind of a background, um, I think we're all aware that national politics in this country has become very intense and it's been bubbling up and getting seemingly worse with each passing year. Um, uh, And we've seen data on, you know, members of certain parties, you know, increasingly say they won't marry members of other parties and all sorts of stuff. This larger context, I think, is important because when you think about the kind of players in the political game, the politicians uh, in particular, they feel increasingly incentivized to play really hard. And if you think of uh, politics you know, within the framework of like a game, you know, baseball, football, whatever, you'll see that, you know, the more intense the competition, the kind of greater the desire to stretch the rules or to just outright break them, or to try to litigate them and claim that the rules don't actually say what you think they say. Uh, And to try to turn over every little rock to find some rule or law that somebody is, that's mostly forgotten about, and then exploit it for partisan advantage. And, you know, politicians, sometimes they act with substantive goals. They want to change policy. They want to stop something from happening. They want to make something happen. Other times they engage in Symbolic activity. What they're doing is trying to please the political base. They're trying to please donors. They're trying to polish their own personal brand because perhaps they want to be president one day or something like that. So, this is kind of the context. And with the Electoral Count Act, what we see is that, you know, between 2005 and 2020, it becomes a venue for partisan combat. Uh, As Andy alluded to already, 2005 was the first time that it's provision where, you know, you um, as a legislator can object and stop the count and force both chambers to go into debate. That was the first time it was invoked in the name of election fraud. Uh, There was accusations that Ohio's machines were rigged and that Secretary of State Ken Blackwell, a Republican, had done shady things to... Depress the votes in certain areas uh to the detriment of democrats um and yeah you know um if you take otayo's slate off the board uh george w bush doesn't win now does he um fast forward 2017 you can still find the video online it's worth looking at you have joe biden presiding over the joint session in january and they're trying to go through the ceremonial process of counting the slates and declaring who the president is, and one Democrat after another comes up to object. They were all members of the House, so they didn't have to separate and go debate. Uh, But, you know, Jamie Raskin was there. Uh, So were other Democrats who were saying, you know, the vote was rigged, Uh, the Russians interfered, there was, you know, spaghetti thrown at the wall, Um, and, for them, this was brand polishing. This is a way to speak to a base that was shocked and very upset. And I have no doubt that there were members of the Republican Party who were looking at this and going, okay, we might be able to play this game too. And boom, we end up in the unusual circumstance where you have a sitting president who is defeated, but relentlessly denies that he is defeated, um, pops off all sorts of conspiracy theories, and then it comes kind of to the culminating question, like, what are you members of my party, members of Congress going to do? And Mr. Trump said, you know, my my vice president, he's gonna be sitting in the chair, presiding over the chamber. Maybe he should just not count certain votes, just send them back to the states. And you had, you know, people who had not thought about the electoral count act in a very long time, suddenly going, huh, wow, is that really possible? Is that plausible? And when you have that kind of partisan self-interest with the, can I make a plausible legal argument that this is okay? When those things flow together, bad things can result. And that's what you had on, on January 6th, 2020. I mean, you had uh, first Josh Hawley kind of uh, broke ranks and decided that he you know, was going to object, which therefore forced both chambers to split and to go into debate. Uh, And after that came Ted Cruz. And then there were up to 10 others, GOP senators who were going to uh, participate in this. And, you know, more than 120 House GOP members, a majority of GOP said they were going to do it and potentially six slates, state slates were up for grabs. Uh, Arizona, PA, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, they were going to object to all of them and see if they could get him possibly tossed, or at least look really good doing it. Well, as we all know, uh, the process, well, uh, election denier Paul Gozer was on the floor uh, denouncing the results. Protesters broke into the building. They had to call things off for a time. We had the riot. We had the awfulness. And then at the end of the day, mercifully, there was a reconvening. And yes, Arizona was objected to by the GOP. Yes, Pennsylvania was objected to, but it was overwhelmingly those objections were voted down. And, you know, everybody came up shook, shaken up by that. You know, you had staffers running for their life, you had members of Congress running for their lives, you had the vice president, you know, right. It, 40 seconds or a minute away from being grabbed by a mob. It was a bad scene. People had been revved up under the impression that this really could succeed, that you could actually stop Joe Biden from becoming president. And I think that's what really you know, puts us where we are now, which is we've got legislation in Congress trying to fix the Electoral Count Act, and it feels like we're this close to getting this patched over uh, and fixed up so that Hopefully we can discourage uh, the politicians who do have incentives to do things that are not not always the best, to not repeat this again. And with that, I'll pass to my colleague.
0: Thanks, Kevin. I think that's a, a fantastic history. It shares a little bit about what was going on and I think uh, brings back for many of us, I think the well, the deeply concerning memories of what happened on January 6th and the the shock that came out of it. I think, uh, like many people, when uh, when watching that and hearing what was leading up to it and this potential talk of of objecting to the count, it all seemed like more of the kind of grandstanding that we'd seen over the last few years. But something about this one built a lot of momentum in sort of terrifying ways that I think uh, not but for the the rioting and the breaking into the Capitol building really changed the conversation. Uh, jean Viev, I wanted to turn to you next to talk a little bit about where things went from January 6th. That, as Kevin started to talk about, we've seen a uh, really meaningful movement toward reforming the Electoral Count Act over the course of the last two years. And things seem to be on the cusp of moving in a direction uh, that would hopefully solve for some of that issue. So what has the conversation been over the course of the, the last couple of years? What are the houses of Congress engaging in and and what uh, what do we anticipate will come of those efforts?
3: Great, hi everyone um and yeah let me just start with a couple of thoughts that just picking up on where where kevin left off because absolutely i think the events of i would say the the event started earlier before january 6 2021 there's sort of a months long effort that led to that which is i think what makes this election so much different than than the others but of course it builds on history um and it really our system was shaken and you know our democracy the sort of concept of free and fair elections followed by peaceful transitions of power is really the foundation of our democracy. And that's what was really shaken. um, And I think remains pretty um, precarious. Um, I'm not not like generally in the category of being an alarmist, but I think we're at a really sort of critical juncture. Um, And and this is all sort of to get to the question a little bit of like, why why is Congress notwithstanding the hyper-partisan, you know, uh, landscape that we find ourselves in, why are they they undertaking this? Um, And, you know, my organization, uh, Protect Democracy, thinks a lot about um, you know, how democracies decline into authoritarianism and, and, and the like. And the way that often happens is not necessarily through these days, through violence and you know, sort of that kind of obvious overthrow of governments, but one of the things that we see happen, at least internationally, are elections that are sort of illusory or don't actually uh, aren't meaningful um, or predetermined and the like. And you know, I think one of the risks that at least my organization perceives right now, and just to like zoom out a bit, is a real concern about certified election results not reflecting the will of the people, and more specifically, not you know we can debate issues of voter suppression and other things that happen and how that more broadly reflects the will of the people, but really very specifically concerns about certified election results not reflecting the actual votes cast. And there are a variety of ways that that, that elections can be subverted, and we're seeing that play out at both the state and federal levels. But the ECA is one important piece of that, at least in the presidential election context. Um, and so I think we're seeing Democrats and Republicans, not maybe not a fully even split, at least on the, the House side, um, but really sort of dig in. They have been sort of it was a slow build up following the events of January 6th that really picked up speed this year. Um, and I think there's a sort of an across the board recognition. for It's important to learn the lessons of January 6th, um, even though um, you know, to Kevin's point, some of the legal theories that were sort of floated out there were really groundless. Um, that doesn't mean that you ignore the sort of weaknesses in the system and the flaws in the statute that were exposed. Nonetheless, you shore them up and you ideally get a statute that will take you through the next many elections, not just the next one. Um, but, you know, I, I think members of Congress also are looking for um, their own clarity, <laughs> right? So in some respects, you might say even cover. They, there are many who like actually behaving in good faith and want to be able to point to very clear rules of the road. And that's good for them, and it's good for the public in terms of understanding and having faith in our elections. So I think that's sort of what's happening in the in the background here. And so this year, you know, after many, many years of hardly touching the statute, except in sort of minor ways, we're seeing real momentum towards reforming it. Um, and we sort of seen parallel efforts, one on the House side, the House of Representatives, and the other in the Senate. Um, early in the year, the House Administration Committee, um, released a pretty detailed report outlining the weaknesses in the statute and the ways it might be fixed. Um, then, you sort of following that was, of course, the Select Committee investigating the events of January sixth, which has, you know, done I think a pretty good job of really laying out in dramatic detail a lot of things, but in- including how the Electoral Count Act was sort of exploited or manip- manipulated throughout this process and sort of the unfortunately sort of starring role it played in, in some of the events. Um, and then more recently, I think sub- someone can correct me if I get any of these dates wrong, but it was September that representatives Lofgren and Cheney, so bipartisan, um uh introduced a bill to reform the statute. Um, and that passed um uh very shortly thereafter, passed the House on uh it was, you know technically bipartisan basis, but just just sort of barely. Um there were a number of Republicans who voted in favor of it, but I think, I think someone can correct me. I think most of those are folks who are leaving, leaving uh, Congress. And so um, it's, it's sort of a different dynamic than we're seeing play out in the Senate. So that's what's happening in the House. That bill has been passed the House and that's sort of where it is at the moment. You know, At the same time, you know, the Senate sort of proceeded very differently, which is it's an interesting dynamic in how the two chambers operate differently. Um, but a bipartisan working group was formed led by Senator Collins and Manchin. Um, uh, they sort of developed a group of I don't, the number was somewhere between 16 and 20 senators of both parties who really spent months working out, um, you know, the, the sort of a- details and aspects of reform, and then ultimately putting pen to paper. Um, they did. A f- there are a few other things that were sort of in the bills that came out of that process, but the main thing that they did is come up with a, um, a reform sta- a reform bill, the Electoral Count Reform Act, um, uh, that came out in July, I believe. Uh, following that, the rules so of this isn't, you know, when you have a bill, it depends on which committee in the House which committee in the Senate has jurisdiction It's the Senate Rules Committee, led by Senator Klobuchar and, and Blunt. Uh, they had a hearing that brought several experts um, really showcased but like, bipartisan or cross ideological support for reforming the statute and for many of the, the elements of reform, highlighted some differences in some ways that maybe the, the Senate bill as it stood then could be improved. Um, and then following that we saw some I would say seemingly minor but important changes made to the bill. It passed out of committee and was referred to the full Senate um, just last month. So we've got we've got a House bill, we've got a Senate bill. Um, we can get into more of the details. They are sort of structurally very similar, but there are, are some differences. Um, and I think we're just sort of all on hold just a bit while we have uh, midterm elections. Um, but our expectation. Uh, I'm sort of optimistic, sort of like like Kevin, like we're this close. Is that in, during the lame duck session, we'll we'll see this sort of like come together and with any with any luck, have a bill by, by the time the next Congress is sworn in, which is really I think the critical that's the window when it has to get done.
0: Jean-Via, thank you so much for uh, giving us a breakdown into what's happened over the course of the 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 last couple of years. I think it's fascinating. So the The question that i have for all of our panelists uh i I think to move us into the next stage of this we've talked a little bit about what's happening right now big picture uh it seems like passing the electoral count act is a big deal that it's the kind of thing that is uh, of the moment and particularly important given what we've seen of the acceleration of attempts to use the electoral count act and the vagaries in it over the course of the last 10 to 15 years uh, to really put a stop to that, is it as big of a deal as it seems, I guess, is the the question that I wanted to pose all of you. That is, uh, obviously, nothing in Washington is a silver bullet for all that ails us when it comes to polarization and some of the problems in politics. But is this as important as it seems?
2: Kevin, did you want to take a first stab at that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I certainly, I mean, when you have American citizens believing that they can storm into a chamber, and if they seize the the right pieces of paper that they can get the president they want, that's that's not healthy. And yeah, 99.99% of Americans obviously didn't do that, but the fact that we had a not insignificant number who marched on the Hill do that um, is a big deal. And I think, you know, when I looked at the bipartisan push to reform the Electoral Count Act, I kind of view it, maybe since my political science training, as Something akin to a truce between the two parties. You know, they realize they've been playing some really nasty ball with each other, um, and at a certain point, you go over the line and are like, "Wait a minute that this is this is mutual assured destruction." You know, a couple of years, Kamala Harris is going to be sitting in that chair. How do you feel about that, fellow Republicans? Um, <laughs> and it, you know, I, I liken it to you know, close lining in football. You know, that was legal for a long time. You could stick your arm out and just take a guy's head off on the football field. At a certain point, the teams kind of realized, like, we're all losing players. This is just too destructive. We got to take this out of the game. And that's what I'm hoping is, like, this is a truce that we need to have because the transfer of power is just so fundamental to a constitutional republic that we we can't let that slip. Absolutely.
0: I. Andy, I know this is something you spent some time writing on recently. Uh, There's some differences between the House and Senate versions of the bill. There's been some changes in the Senate version as it's proceeding through committee and where it is. How likely are we to see in a sort of final format of this legislation, something that really meaningfully addresses the the underlying problem and what allowed for the, uh, we'll call it the shenanigans of January 6th?
1: Yeah, well, as uh, jean viv mentioned, the House and Senate bills um, have a few important differences, but they are uh, broadly similar. You know, going into this, there was some concern that Congress might only do a cosmetic tweak, that they would only insert something about the vice president and get to decide um, or just do minor things. And um, it's a testament to the, the good faith engagement of members of both parties that um, both of these bills are actually very substantive and very uh closely track the the uh, con- uh consensus uh among all the all the people on uh, uh across the political spectrum who have looked at this um it does a few they all they both do a few things and then i'll i'll explain kind of a couple of the differences um so they they both uh create a firmer uh rule that the state certification is what's supposed to be decisive um They both also create something that's not exactly in the current DCA, though there are roundabout ways you can get there through other existing laws. Um, But to have a a clear expedited judicial mechanism uh, to handle the scenario where you have the governor of a state or the secretary of state uh, do something crazy and refuse to certify the duly chosen uh, electors Which they're they're not allowed to do. There's, you know, if you carefully read the Constitution, that's certainly not something (laughs) the governor of a state is supposed to be able to do. Um, And then it rewrites the rules of the joint session. Um, Really, if you look at, uh, I mean, I welcome anybody to look at it. It's not too long, uh, but Title Three, uh, Section Fifteen, is the current. Most notorious part of the existing Electoral Count Act, it has run-on sentences that are hundreds of words long. Um, if one of your students turned in this essay, it would not get a good grade. <laughs> it contradicts itself. It's a it's a mess. Um, so both of them go through and and kind of just break it down and insert some paragraph breaks which you needed, um, and and clarify some of the terms. Um, the main substantive thing they they both tried to do to the rules is uh, limit the valid grounds for objections. Because um, there are some scenarios where Congress legitimately might have to handle things if uh, electoral votes were cast for an eligible presidential candidate, for example, somebody who was not 35 years old or wasn't a citizen or something, uh, which is unlikely, but it could happen. Um, and a few other things, electors have to meet on the same day. There's a few technical things about What the electors have to do that Congress might have to handle, but it's not Congress's job to sit in judgment on the underlying popular election in each state and thus who properly became the state's electors. Um, That's a matter for the courts to sort out in the post election litigation, and, and it should just come to Congress as a matter of fact that here's who we have certified this is how the courts have ruled on it. Um, If Congress doesn't get to say no, we're going to pick the other party's um, claimant electors or the fake (laughs) electors like they tried to do in 2020. Um, So the differences are uh, the House bill um, is a bit more aggressive on narrowing that those valid grounds for objections. Um, It has kind of an exhaustive list that goes through, all right, there's this clause in the Constitution, so here's the corresponding grounds you can object to. Um, It has about a half dozen items it runs through. Um, The Senate bill is closer to the existing text, um, though it does strengthen it still. uh, In terms of there's, you can object to uh, votes that were not regularly given or lawfully certified. Um, And it refers back to the court rulings under that mechanism. Um, And that's a term of art that, uh, regularly given, has kind of a a pretty well-established meaning that Congress has gotten away from. So this would tie them more closely to that. Um, Also, the House uh, bill would require one-third of each chamber uh, to to sponsor objections, um, whereas the Senate bill would require one-fifth of each chamber. that's kind of one of the simpler differences that people don't tend to feel that's hugely important. I mean, um, even if it's one fifth, twenty senators is a is a high bar. Um, none of the objections in 2020 would have uh, would have cleared that bar, um, as opposed to the current system where any one member of each chamber, if they get together, can can do it and delay the count and uh, send things to the chambers for debates and votes. Um, the house bill is also a little bit broader on creating some judicial remedies for uh, related scenarios that can play out in this process it goes a little bit broader on some of the requirements on the states for what they're supposed to do Um, but that's that's the main points of difference and um, i mean as we're looking you know both just in general and in this particular case uh, the Senate tends to get its way more than the House, and the Senate bill has much broader bipartisan support. Um, Mitch McConnell doesn't like the House bill. Uh, the House Republicans didn't like the House bill. Um, but I think so, I think it's possible there will be some minor tweaks. When the Senate Rules Committee did their markup, they did take a few steps on some things. Um, one of the things they changed was to uh, strengthen the language allowing a state to have. Um, to extend voting if your state gets hit by a hurricane on election day, basically, is what this section covers. And they, uh, the House was concerned that that was too open-ended, so they inserted some language. Uh, using. You know, it has to be a force majeure situation where you're you know, literally physically compelled, not just that there's a lawsuit ongoing or something. Um, so that was one of the changes, and there was a few other tweaks like that. Um, but it's likely the final product will look pretty close to the current Senate version of the bill.
0: So thanks Andy. Uh one last question from me and very quickly from from all of our panels before I want to turn to the queue the questions coming in from the participants which have been fantastic please keep them coming. Uh, what? What remaining concerns do each of you have about what is moving through the House and the Senate now? That is, taking a look at the bills, what are some of the areas where you would critique them and say, you know, given given my perspective and what I would want to see, here's something more that I would hope to have seen in there. Uh, Jean-Pierre, let's start with you. What <laughs> what more would you would you hope to see in the legislation as it's moving forward?
3: Yeah, and I I think I'm going to partly answer that by also piggybacking on some some of Andy's last response because I think at the end of the day. I mean, my view and protect democracy's view is that these are both good bills. Um, and we sort of judge that by a couple of criteria. One is like, is it better than the status quo? <laughs> and I think the answer to that is clearly yes. Um, and then two, you know, for we've been, you know, we've been working on the Electoral Count Act and thinking about it for longer than most and have a sort of list of things like. Here the the things that the main weaknesses and what needs to be fixed and do they address those in some you know form or fashion and the answer is yes for both bills um, so there are no glare to, in my view like no glaring omissions, right this is complicated stuff reasonable good faith people can disagree about some of the details um, uh, so I mean my biggest concern is just making sure we get this just uh, this done the strongest version possible by basically by January um, there are little things I might change, I might move back the meeting of the Electoral College to allow a little, little bit more time for disputes to play out. Because um, we we're live in a litigious world these days, and that takes a little bit of time. Um, and, you know, although sometimes be careful what you wish for, you sort of fill the time you've got, <laughs> not always a good thing. Um, I think to the point Andy was making about specifying, you know, what's appropriate in terms of objections by members of Congress has both sort of like importance as the rules, right? So members of Congress should know what the rules are, and they should be able to, to turn to their constituents and say what's inbounds and out of bounds. Um, that has like sort of a normative effect, right? Of helping the public understand what this process is really about. It's about counting votes. It's not about second guessing election results. And so, yeah, if, if I had the pen, I would uh, add some more specificity there, get get rid of even more of some of the arcane language from the current law and not incorporate that going forward. But to, but I think Andrew is right that it is much these bills are much in the senate bill which is more sort of small c conservative in that respect does a good job and like if that's if that's what where the consensus is let's let's take it um but i would just you know highlight a couple of things that i think are just sort of zooming out a little bit that are really important that both bills do and i'll I'll go quick and just you know remembering that in our constitution there's a division of responsibility between the states and the federal government and, and congress in particular States get to decide the manner in which electors are appointed, right? So we don't have to hold popular elections at all. Um, We all do and have for you know century now, Um, but but that's the role of the states. And then states largely conduct elections. Um, It is up to Congress to decide the timing, right? When electors are appointed, and then later to count the votes when the state process is sort of completed and the certificates are sent on to Congress. Um, And that's important for a couple of reasons. One is two things that I would say that, that the bill does that are among the most important, I say bills, is you know thinking back to like the, the history that Andy went through where the ECA, as currently written, contemplated that might be warring certificates coming out from the same state, warring slates of electors. Both bills really do a lot to eliminate that possibility such that by the time January 6 rolls around, it should be, I mean, maybe 99.9%, you know, um, it should be very clear what is the appropriate slate for Congress to count, so that when it convenes, members of Congress do their job and count and you know announce the result. And of so eliminating the sort of room for the, what we saw play out um, during the last election, um, and it does that in a variety of ways, or sort of in the weeds. But but I think it's an important difference between the two. Um, and then the other Andy sort of alluded to, which played I think very heavily in the January sixth lead up. Um, and some of the bad takes on current law, but nonetheless is something we need to fix. Is this provision in current law, which says if a state holds an election, as they do, and somehow fails to make a choice, then the state legislature can step in and just dis- determine the manner of appointing electors after election day, right? And that that sort of gets at Congress's authority to set the timing. What Congress said, you know, 135 years ago, actually, more than that, this provision dates back even further said that, yes, we will have an election day, but then it created an exception um, uh, to that, but it did that in this very vague language of failed to make a choice. And we saw uh, some of the characters involved in the January 6th events really try to exploit that language to suggest that state legislatures could say, no, 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 we don't trust the results, fraud, what have you. We declare the election failed, and therefore, we were going to appoint electors, in this case, for President Trump, and both both bills, do away with that concept entirely and replace it with very clear rules of when the election has to be conducted hmm. and a very narrow exception for true emergencies, in which case voting needs to be extended. So just sort of zoom out there. I think those are really two important pieces that tie together the past and the present and where these bills are going.
0: Uh, briefly, before we jump to Q&A, Kevin, additional thoughts, things that you would hope to see in the legislation that's perhaps not there or, or tweaks that you would encourage uh,
2: Congress to take a look at? Um, I think you know I'm I'm happy with the legislation as it stands. Um my only concern is that once we get it across the line, you know, hurrah, but then getting people in Congress to honor it, to come out and say like this is the new shared understanding of how the process works. And no, I'm a democrat and no, I'm a republican. You cannot expect the presiding officer in the chamber to simply refuse to count. You can't do any number of things. Like, prove that they have a shared understanding and that we're not going to find ourselves next time around with people making, you know, uh, clever legal arguments uh, that aim to basically get them politically what they want. Um, this is kind of a sociological take. This is just about the elites, the players in the game agreeing out loud and saying, we're not going to go there again. That's so
0: often so important for for bringing these kinds of things, not from just uh, what's on the parchment, so to speak, but what's in the reality. I think that's a, an incredibly important point. Uh, so let's, Let's turn to questions from the audience, some really good ones here. Uh, They expand our scope of the conversation just a little bit from thinking about the Electoral Count Act, also thinking about related electoral reform pieces. But one of the first questions we got in, and I think an an important one for thinking about how this fits in the the broader conversation, has to do with the independent study legislature theory. So Guy asks... uh, would you share a little bit more about the independent state legislature theory and how you think SCOTUS might rule in the dependent case, Moore versus Harper? So, I think uh, very briefly. If someone wanted to jump in and share, what what is the independent state legislature theory, and then talk a little bit about uh, how it fits into this broader conversation? Anyone want to take a first stab at that?
3: I think either Andy or I could do it. Maybe we can play off each other a little bit. And if you're noticing us smirking a bit, it's because I'm glad you asked this question because my first answer is like, the independent state legislature theory and the ECA have almost nothing to do with each other, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of confusion in sort of the public, re- even public reporting and major outlets. I've been seeing a lot, of, a lot of confusion about this. So uh, it's an extremely important case. We, I don't know, three of us may have different takes on, on it. I'm not sure, um, uh, but it is not about like, you know, really about the specifics of prejudicial elections and how electors are chosen and, and the like. Um, But it it is a theory that essentially says um, that state legislatures um, get to decide the rules of federal elections, congressional elections um, and presidential elections to some extent, um, free from constraints under state law. Right. So it it really emphasizes some words in the Constitution that refer to state legislatures uh, and seizes on those as as being sort of above state courts, (laughs) state constitutions. Maybe in extreme versions of the theory, sort of the gubernatorial veto process, and really it says state legislatures get to decide how to run federal elections, um, uh, and that can have all sorts of consequences. Um, you know, that that means all the protections in state constitutions, if state courts can't impose, can't sort of impose those, can have effects. It can mean that potentially state and federal con- uh, elections are run very differently, and we have sort of a level of chaos that happens. Really, I think. Pretty dangerous theory, especially at its most extreme versions. There are sort of sort of a scale of how folks see how extreme uh, to take this theory. And I'm not sure the case tees up really the most extreme versions, but um, so it'll be interesting. I'm curious what Andy thinks about wh- where the court's going to go. But taken to its furthest extreme, it's hard to imagine the court saying that state legislatures get to operate completely free of state constitutions or gubernatorial veto or the legislative process, for example. Um, but one thing it doesn't do is even if it's adopted by the court in in an extreme form, it does not mean that state legislatures and other state institutions aren't subject to federal law. So federal law, including the Constitution and including the Electoral Count Act, as it's written now or as it hopefully will be reformed, would still apply. And part of what those things together mean is that state legislatures cannot, after having held an election, come back and say, we don't like the results, we're going to decide to toss them out and appoint electors ourselves it'd violate the Electoral Count Act, probably violate the Constitution. And those are federal constraints on on the state process. And so the one sort of misconception we're seeing the most, at least I'm seeing the most is, well, if the court adopts this theory, that means state legislatures get to decide presidential elections. And that's just not not the case.
1: Mm. No, I I agree with uh, a a lot of that. Um, (laughs) So this case came out of North Carolina where Um, There was a fight, basically, between the legislature and the state Supreme Court. Uh, The state constitution has a provision that uh, requires free and equal elections, and it has an equal protection clause. Um, I think the actual ruling we're going to get is going to be probably pretty narrow, um, with a moderate, weaker version of independent state legislature theory. Um, which is basically my guess and, you know, famous last words on on what this court's going to do. But my expectation is that it's going to basically say that that's going too far, that the state constitution having these very vague provisions, you can't have the state Supreme Court basically throw out the legislature's work and say we're going to do it ourselves based on that. Um, this has come up at the court before. In 2015, Arizona adopted by a uh, ballot initiative an independent redistricting commission, which is a popular reform idea a lot of states have done. Um, there was a fight about that. Uh, the court upheld it, um, but the balance of the court has since shifted a little bit. So that's part of the question. Um, but at the danger of prognosticating, I don't think they're going to overturn Arizona. I don't think they're going to say that state courts and constitutions can't play any role. I think they're going to keep it pretty narrow to what they're actually mad about, which is this sense that state courts have been running amok without good solid grounding and, and a specific mandate of the state constitution. Um, but uh, also, uh, there's been unfortunately, and all of us who've been working on ECA have encountered this frustration. A lot of Uh, bad reporting and bad claims from some uh, politicians out there that this would endorse um, basically the John Eastman scheme, among others, Um, the the idea that we can convene the state legislature in December and they're just going to throw out the votes. Um, No, Congress sets the time of choosing electors. That time is Election Day in early November um, and there's no do-overs. you know, a state legislature could do all kinds of things. They could say, we're gonna pick the electors. They could say, uh, we're gonna pick names out of a hat if they wanted, um, but they have to decide that ahead of time and they have to implement it on the day. And then afterwards, it's just a matter of playing out the rules as they stood on election day. Um, and this confusion comes about in part because, so even the stronger versions that I, I'm not super sympathetic to either, but they're, they're reasonable arguments of the independent state legislature theory. Like this is a serious uh, legal scholar debate that's been happening for a long time about what does it mean exactly when the constitution refers to a state legislature, but you have all these other parts of the state government it might be interacting with. um, And and how does that principle uh, apply and how do you interpret that? Um, And Eastman and uh, Sidney Powell and some of the other uh, cast of characters, around Trump and a lot of the, the failed lawsuits in 2020, um, kind of tried to latch on to that superficially to say, look, this is what we're saying. That, that, that's the plenary total power of the state legislatures that you can do this. Um, when in fact, I don't think there's a single justice on the Supreme Court who would endorse that. Uh, the, even the Republican National Committee and its amicus brief went out of its way to say, no, that's not what we're arguing. That would be invalid. Um, it really was kind of like a fringe kook thing that the people around Trump came up with. And it's that is not what's at stake in this case. Cool. Uh,
0: thank you both. Uh, another really great question that came in, I wanted to pose this one uh, to Kevin. Uh, Guy Rass asks, uh, could you speak a little bit to the role of the first-past-the-post, winner-take-all electoral formula that we use in the United States and its tendency to create a two-party system? Is this a problem considering the mischiefs of faction we observe today, and if so, how can we constrain political party power? Uh, Kevin, can you take a stab at that one and, and share a little bit more about how we might think about that question?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I just shared in the chat box um, something that may be of interest to, to you all as educators. There are very short interviews that I'm doing with scholars and election administrators and others about aspects of how we run elections. And I put that out there because the whole question of the first past the post, the use of partisan primaries, uh, that whole sort of system, is something that's being much studied, much discussed, and in many cases, much criticized. Um, you know, it's on the whole a rather crude tool for determining what the people want, um, and we know that the process begins with a primary in most instances. Uh, In some cases, you may have some sort of caucus or convention type event, but the long and the short of it is they are all low turnout events that tend to have very highly committed people, very partisan people that is, show up to them. Uh, My home state of Ohio, for example, during the Senate primary uh, this, this year, I mean, it's a Senate seat, it's a big deal, Nonetheless, uh, between twenty and twenty-five percent of eligible voters cast a vote, uh, and as a result, you end up in general elections having candidates from parties who, you know, ran very hard left and right at the very start of things, and who are basically looking to just pick off enough independence uh, by pushing the right buttons, you know, saying the right things, uh, making the right gestures. To pull a majority, and you know. As a result, we end up with people in Congress um, who don't have broad support, um, who look primarily to their base as a means for staying in power, and who you know, if they're in the House, they're up for election every two years. Uh, um, and you know, when you look at the Senate, you look at the House, and the House is wickedly more partisan than the Senate. The Senate's partisan, but the House is wickedly more partisan. Uh, why? Because they are facing the primaries and their base voters every two years, and they don't have that room to kind of reach across the aisle that other people have. Certainly not on high salience issues. And that's another thing I would emphasize is that this kind of duopolistic system we've got has led to brand competition that's quite extreme. You know, it's all about polishing your brand to get the most voters at in the immediate future, um, and. You may be committed to a policy for many years, but if suddenly you feel like it's not selling, you just walk away from it, like the Republicans did on free trade. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's not a stealth, stable, healthy sort of thing. And this is why we've seen control of, of Congress vacillate from Republicans to Democrats at a rate that we haven't seen since, guess what, the late 19th century uh, when we were recovering from the Civil War. So, yeah, it's a problem. Restructuring elections, thinking about ranked choice voting, final five, all sorts of other permutations is it's in the air and it's happening. We need more of that. We have just
0: a, a few minutes left on the panel. So what I wanted to do is ask just a, a quick closing question of each of you, taking a look at the topic of election reform more broadly. Uh, In addition to some of the changes that you all hope to see when it comes to the Electoral Count Act, what is something that you think, uh, a concrete step at either the state or the federal level, that could help improve the overall health of elections and, as a result, our our broader civic culture? Uh, Whether that's, like Kevin mentioned, something like ranked choice voting or other efforts. Uh, From each of your perspectives, what would you say as a... if this is a step we would take, this would be the one thing that I might happen to recommend. Uh, so let's take uh, you know, sort of a, a minute a piece or so, a lightning round answer, if you will. Andy, uh, let me turn to you first. What is your, your one recommendation
1: above and beyond uh, changes to the Electoral Count Act? Oh, my one thing. Um, <laughs> I know I, I agree uh, with, with Kevin. I'm excited about uh, the things that are going on in electoral reform. Um, I'm a fan. It's one of the uh, benefits of our federal system that the states can be, in this case, literal laboratories of democracy. I want states out there experimenting with things like ranked choice, with nonpartisan primaries, uh, multi-member districts with proportional representation is another idea out there that I'm I'm a fan of. Um, And I think it's also important for these things to start at the state level, uh, where one, they're more doable, and two, we can get a sense of how they work. One example I would point to that I'm not a fan of is the top two system that California and I believe also Washington state use, Um, but this was motivated by a very similar kind of impulse that uh, this is going to be a moderation anti polarization thing. Um, It's turned out to not be a very good system um, with a lot of problems so but that's an example of how a state can try something and they get it wrong and we all learn a lesson from that. Um, I, I. you know, it's harder at the federal level um, to do the, you know, there's rules set by the Constitution about uh, how we elect a president, how we elect the Senate and the House um, that are much, much harder to change and there's structural issues that are more difficult. Um, But no, I'm looking forward to seeing more of those sorts of things and states uh, uh, really going with it. I mean, one thing that I would point out is... um, there's very, very few other major democracies that use, um, still use first past the post plurality elections like we do with single member districts uh, also. I mean, it's basically us, Canada and the UK and it's it's kind of a historical accident that we got there to democracy first. And this was the only system anybody knew at the time. There hadn't been all these alternatives invented yet. And so we kind of got on a bit of a path dependency. Uh, with using first past the post, but um, I'm I'm in favor of uh, let a, let a thousand flowers bloom in terms of all these different reform options.
0: Thanks, Sandy. Uh, jean viev I'd love to love to pose the same question to you. What's a one reform that you would recommend above and beyond the electoral count act?
3: Um, it's it's hard to choose just one. I mean, I, I would, I'm I'm going to cheat a little and say one reform, and then one thing I think people should really be thinking about and concerned about. Um, and one is just sort of reversing what is a little a trend now in some states of really sort of reinjecting partisanism into election administration and the like, um, and that means you know a suite of laws we've seen to, to varying degrees adopted, sometimes rejected, but even adopted in some states that allow really partisan politicians to inject themselves in the process and sort of displacing or minimizing the role of professional election. Uh, workers and administrators to make sure that our you know that has all sorts of trickle down effects it can risk the integrity actually of the results it can certainly risk public confidence in the results um, and that gets to that problem of wanting to make sure that our elections actually re- you know the results actually reflect the, the actual votes cast um, and i think that's a really disturbing trend that we've got to roll back um, but the other thing that's happening that's pretty disturbing right now is this sort of unprecedented level of threats that election workers and volunteers are facing and we're seeing those folks leave election administration in really disturbing numbers. And those folks are sort of the backbone of, of our elections, that you know, it's a very, very local level, regular people, sometimes volunteers, sometimes professionals who conduct elections. And if they feel like they can't do that out of fear for their lives in some cases, or harassment and sort of other consequences, our whole, I think democracy is going to suffer. So I think that's a really urgent, urgent problem.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Uh- Kevin, last words, Uh, what would you suggest as uh, one additional reform or change that you'd love to see uh, above and beyond the Electoral Count Act?
2: So I don't have the magic bullet. I, like other panelists, have a whole lot of various ideas. But one thing I am currently doing with a class of students I'm teaching, it's an intro to college class, is I am asking them to read the speeches that were given on January 6th and ask the question, were any of the senators or the representatives speaking either for objection or against objection, or any of them not doing their job. What do we want from a senator or representative? What do we conceive of as their role to play in our system? And after we kind of get that clarified, then we can start talking about what sort of elections are more likely to select such individuals. It's kind of a hiring thing. You, You want to get the right people on the job? Well, you got to know what the job is supposed to look like, and then you got to figure out the appropriate hiring means.
0: All right. Thank you, Kevin, Genevieve, Andy, so much for joining us for the conversation tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Uh we've been, uh, you guys may have seen a number of resources thrown in the chat. We will be sending those out afterward in email, so we'll compile them all together. So if you lose track of them from here, don't worry about it. But Kevin, Andy, Jean-Viev, thank you so much for joining us for tonight's conversation. Really appreciate having you here. And thank you for the conversation you've been able to share with our teachers tonight. Thank
4: uh, you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Up next, what I want to do is introduce a great friend of Sphere and uh, a frequent participant in our, our programming, Dave Olson. Uh, who has an exceptionally modest bio that I would love to embolden it? Dave is the director of education for Retro Report. Prior to joining Retro Report, David was award winning teacher of US history, AP, US government, and politics and criminal justice at a public high school in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Dave is also a fantastic friend of all of our work here and a great connoisseur of beer. So if you ever have the opportunity to pick his brain, uh, I strongly recommend it. He's here tonight to share with us uh, some of the fantastic resources that his organization, Retro Report, has when it comes to the midterm elections and some of the ways in which you can bring these conversations directly back to your classroom. Uh, they're all fantastic. I can't uh, recommend them highly enough. Uh, but Dave, let me turn it over to you. The, the floor yeah. is yours, sir.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate the, the introduction. It's always a pleasure to uh, join SPEER. And the the wonderful group of of educators that that Sphere brings out, um, I I appreciate. I you know as Alan said, I was a longtime uh, social studies teacher at a number of different levels. Uh, the longest uh, of my tenure was was at the high school level, uh, and certainly this is the the exact sort of thing that that I too like you would have uh, would have tuned into uh, to, to to learn more uh, about all sorts of different. Ideas about, uh, you know, election reform. What sort of issues are we facing? Um, and uh, I think the important thing and, and something I appreciate about Sphere is is always then tying it back to uh, what can we do in the classroom. Uh, what sort of resources are out there and exist to engage students to have students begin grappling with some of these questions. Um, and so tonight I, I'm here as the director of education with Retro Report. Uh, because we have created some of those those very resources uh, that we hope you'll use. Um, and I do notice there's at least a, a handful of friendly faces in the audience of people who know RetroReport's work. Uh, in fact, one of the people who's who's joining us, uh, Ryan Warenka, helped write some of the lessons that you're going to see here uh, this evening. So I'm going to share my screen and, and tell you a little bit about RetroReport if you're unfamiliar with RetroReport. Uh, sort of writ large, uh, but then I uh, sort of hone in on some particular resources that I get the my share on the right screen. Alan, wonderful. Uh, hone in on some particular resources to look at some historic midterm elections. Um, so here the the sort of broad overview for those who are are not yet familiar with Retro Report. Uh, our goal is to change that. Uh, we are a, a nonprofit journalism organization that focuses on creating short form documentary films. Um, Our films tend to be in the seven to 12 minute range. So they work really well. Uh, as the basis for a discussion, the start of an inquiry activity, we are uh, very much not a just push play kind of uh, resource. Um, we're not a hey, we're watching a documentary today. I get to I get to sit back and uh, and not you know not have to be an active educator. Uh, we definitely are one where this is going to be integrated into what you're doing in your classroom. Um, our, our films really thrive on a mixture of finding great archival footage looking at how was the story told uh you know at the time what sort of things were people who were living and watching that history seeing um and then first person narratives hearing from the people who made that history themselves uh who lived through it and can provide their perspective um All of our resources, and this is perhaps the most important uh, part of this, all of our resources are entirely free. We have a library of over 275 short form films um, and and a growing list of lesson plans, student activities, Uh, and and things like that, some of which I'll I'll show you this evening. Um, And tonight I'm going to share, we have a a midterm elections collection. We also just launched a collection looking at some historic Supreme Court cases. I know there was a lot of talk about uh, some different Supreme Court ideas, uh, cases, concepts this evening. So that's one uh, folks may also want to check out as well. So our goal here is to uh, figure out what are some of those concepts and points of confusion when teaching about elections, and this would be a great thing uh, to for folks to share in the chat. Do a little uh, crowdsourcing. Uh, if people, you know, find that their students pose sort of similar questions over and over, especially when looking at midterm elections, things like, what makes a midterm different? Why do they matter? Uh, sometimes the question is who are these people running? I, you know, I, all I do is see uh, ads. Well, your students now see ads on, uh, on YouTube, on Instagram, uh, on the places where they're consuming media. Um, and beyond that, you know, what do they know about who's running, what they actually believe? Uh, and, and can they make sense of, uh, of that news and information ecosystem? Uh, can they become skilled consumers? So, I when we began putting uh, this project together, um, the goal was: where in history can we look to give us a sense of what we need to know about midterm elections, sort of writ large, and then some other things uh, along the way, a little bit more specific. So we honed in on on two particular elections. The first, looking at 1966, and this idea of party realignment, um, and you know, this was a question I received very often uh, while teaching AP government, other civics courses, is how is it that these parties seem to have switched places over time? If you look at, you know, electoral college results, election after election, you can see this sort of slowly and then all at once uh, shift a couple different times throughout history. So how does that happen? How do we get this change in American political parties? Um, and what is it, you know, can we, can we hone in on, on some instances here uh, where, we, where we saw those? Um, and then can we use some practical skills like examining maps, evaluating election data, to be able to, to make some of these inferences? So the, the chunk I'm going to show you here is from our film, Uh, Midterm elections, 1966 midterms, signal a political realignment shaping today's parties.
1: I like to think of the 60s was the period when Black Americans became fully citizens in the country that they were already citizens in. The 1954 Brown school desegregation case set loose an avalanche of social activism, this integrationist push. The idea was that if blacks and whites interacted with each other on par, much of the discrimination and prejudice and stereotyping that led to inequality would go away.
5: These damnable proposals under the guise of so-called civil rights...
1: but for the most part. To be a Southern politician was to be a Democrat and
6: to be a segregationist. For generations, Southern politics had been dominated by a conservative segregationist wing of the Democratic Party, a legacy reaching back to the Civil War when the South sought to secede from the country to preserve slavery.
4: And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation
6: forever. Within the
2: Democratic Party, conservative Southern segregationists had made a deal, basically, that they were okay with the Democrats' expansion of some government economic benefits, especially ones that helped the South, as long as they maintained support for segregation.
6: As the civil rights movement sought more and more progress, there was a growing divide between conservative Southern Democrats arguing that states should have the rights to make their own laws and their Northern liberal party mates. My fellow Americans, I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. When President Johnson, a Democrat from Texas, signed the sweeping Civil Rights Act after a bruising battle in Congress, An aide recalled Johnson privately feared white Southerners would depart for the Republican Party. I can think of
1: nothing more dangerous or more divisive or more self-destructive than the effort to prey on what is called white backlash. He understood that you have progress, but there will be a price to pay. There will
6: be a backlash against that. In South Carolina, Senator Strom Thurmond, a longtime Democrat and staunch segregationist, officially switched parties, an early sign that change was afoot. I chose the Republican Party
0: to more
5: effectively represent the beliefs of South Carolinians. In
6: 1966,
5: Strom Thurmond was elected as a Republican for the first time, and we do begin to see the South, parts of the the solid Democratic South
2: begin to break away from the Democratic Party.
5: All right. So that was just a, a snippet of this one. Uh, some of the other things, if you choose to, to show the, the full film, which is about nine minutes long, um, is uh, it, it sort of begins with this question that I think we, we get often with midterms is why do we keep seeing this, uh, this uh, pattern where uh, the in-party loses seats, right? That's something we expect to see uh, here in a couple of weeks, at least to some extent. Um, and it sort of starts with the question of if there were ever a time where we might see the pattern broken, it might be after the uh, 1964 presidential election, right? So here, as we look at the, the midterm elections collection here, you'll see it starts with this one and then there's, uh, starts with the film we just saw, Um, includes a lesson plan and student activity along with a couple other activities, including uh, if you are an AP Gov teacher, we have uh, several different FRQs that you can put directly to use here. Um, If we take a look here at the lesson plan that goes with this one, um, for our purposes, our uh, sort of nomenclature here is that uh, a lesson plan is the teacher-facing document. So here, uh, if you check this out, it will tell you well, here's what you should expect in the lesson. Here are some essential questions, some objectives, all of the different links that you'll need, the procedure that students will go through. Um, and then uh, the student activity is the student facing document. So if there were ever a time here for uh, to break the cycle, I of, of midterm elections and the party in power losing their, their grip or at least losing seats, maybe it's this one, right? So in 1964, uh, you know, in the chat or at least in your head, what sort of things do you think are going to jump out to students looking at the 1964 electoral college map? What questions might they have? What sort of things are they going to see and notice and begin to think about? There's a lot of blue. This was this was an absolute landslide election. Yeah, they might certainly, uh, considering uh, maps we would look at from contemporary elections. Uh, your students have not been alive for a uh, landslide election that looked quite like this. Um, you know, those of us who are a little older uh, may have lived through, uh, you know, the uh, vice president from my home state, Walter Mondale, who uh, created a map that looked quite a bit worse. Okay, yeah, what's up with Arizona, right? So we have these, these five states uh, in the Southeast, and then we have Arizona as the outlier. A total of six states go for the Republican, right? So why might Arizona fit? Well, it happens to be that that's where Barry Goldwater, the candidate, was from, right? But we have this weird island in the solid South. What, what is it that, that drove these folks to vote for Republicans, um, and here, I think one of the other great follow-up questions, um, if we utilize, go down a little bit further to uh, this great resource. Uh, so 270 to win creates these amazing electoral college maps. I happen to like this page in particular, um, Let me zoom out a little bit, because uh, you can see a whole bunch of them at once. Uh, so to sort of see side by side, Um, year or election after election uh, what is it that's happening and how do these things change so what we saw in 1964 was what we call you know the solid south these five states that that vote uh, for republicans Um, any guesses so in the chat again any guesses as to when prior to 1964 some of these states may have voted for republican candidates and I want you to think Georgia is the one I like to pick on in particular, in part because I was just in Georgia for a, a social studies conference, uh, and, and this was this was a favorite little factoid of them. All right, 1868, 19, never. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean, Mark, the 1800s are in play? I, 1700s? What are we? What's, what's in play here? All right, so let's take a look. So here's Georgia, 1964. 1960, we're blue. 1956, man, it looks like almost the exact reverse map. That's a little funky, right? What's happening here? Even nineteen forty-eight, okay, nineteen forty-four. So some of you, yes, a reconstruction. Well, let's take a look, right? We said, you know, 1876 was that really weirdo election, right? And even then, even 1872, 1868? The answer is not only 19 never, but just a flat never. The state of Georgia had never voted for a Republican candidate prior to 1964, okay? Um, and then beyond 1964, there are only a handful of times where they voted again for a Democrat. And one of those happened to be, if we're looking at favorite sun elections, uh, it happened to be 1976, where uh, you know, the, the son of the South, Jimmy Carter, happened to win, right? So uh, this is sort of a taste of, of how we create our resources and our lessons. Um, again, you know, all of these are entirely free for you to, to use in your classroom. It's very easy to go file, make a copy, make whatever changes uh, that work for you. Um, but the, the way we construct our classroom resources is to build some questions around the film itself. Uh, and then to find other high-quality, uh, open-access resources, uh, whether that's primary sources, interactives, uh, things like that, that can supplement and, and create a cohesive lesson uh, that gets to you know a, an enduring or essential question for this lesson. So this is what we have for, for 1966. Um, we're going to jump back here, and I'm going to show you uh, the next one that we've got. So the next one was 1994, and here I I bet I'm hitting the the sweet spot of of a number of of folks in the room, including probably several of you who can remember casting a vote in the 1994 midterms. Uh, I was not quite yet among them. Um, And here we have a a couple different lessons that we sort of broke it out into. The first, um, I I call sort of the candidates and campaigns lesson of of who is it who's running, what sort of things are they running on, um, and then how can we compare that to uh, how are current candidates running? What sort of issues are they highlighting? And then another one, what we call the issues and actions lesson, where we look, uh, and here I'm going to show you, yes, I'm rumming it in, I- I'm going to show you this snippet from the 94 election, and My goodness, you might say I could be watching the exact same election play out in real time as we examine what were some of those hot button issues uh, that, that surfaced in 1994 and how did this election play out?
4: Republicans now are beginning to talk openly about taking control of the House and the Senate. Sometimes midterms can be not that interesting, Voters aren't paying attention in the way they are surrounding a presidential election. The stakes often seem lower. But the 1994 election was, without a doubt, one of the most significant of the 20th century.
1: This is one of the most
6: profound days in American history. We didn't do what the people wanted us to do.
5: I must certainly bear my share of responsibility, and I accept for that.
4: It brought to the fore some of these ideas that are still with us. It was just a tremendous landmark election. You know people who've lost their jobs, lost their homes? Uh Bill Clinton
2: was far and away the best politician I've ever seen. In my state, when
5: people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names.
2: He had that easy way of communicating. He could take the most complex idea and explain it in ways that ordinary people could understand.
6: That combination is lethal. But just two years into his presidency, Bill Clinton's centrist charm had already worn off for many Americans.
4: Many Democratic candidates are keeping their distance from the president.
6: Despite fashioning himself a new kind of Democrat in his run for president. They don't think the way the old
1: Democratic Party did.
6: Clinton had tried to walk a political tightrope that still accomplished liberal policy ideals.
4: Solving our nation's health care crisis.
6: Along with tapping the first lady to lead a failed attempt at universal health care, he signed a policy known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that allowed gays to serve anonymously in the military. And supported a 10-year ban on high-capacity firearms as part of a major anti-crime bill.
4: A midterm election, people think that it's a referendum on the sitting president, and it usually is. Clinton and the Democrats were not all that popular in 1994 and the republicans really worked to capitalize that dance lessons midnight basketball Restrictive
1: gun controls.
4: The rallying cry for Republicans that year was "God, guns, and gays." God, let's take a religion into account. Anti-abortion, gays because Clinton had signed the uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell bill, and guns because an assault weapons ban had been passed.
5: All right. So, uh, if if the debate over uh, abortion. Uh, gun control and LGBTQ plus rights uh, sounds familiar. It, you might be a historian, right? Uh, this watching this film, I think, should help your students uh, connect. I mean, these are these are quite literally the same issues that that they are seeing on television ads today. Um, and so, here, if we take a look at uh, a few of these activities that go with this, um, we have our uh, this first one are, are issues and actions. Um, so here it, uh, ha- oh, excuse me, it asks students to to go through and examine some of these issues from, from the 94 election. Uh, and then later on, begin to make some comparisons. Where can they find these same ideas? Uh, and, and what flavor are they experiencing of, of these particular issues today? Uh, unfortunately, we we don't have the debate over midnight basketball today that we did back then, because I, I certainly missed that one. Uh, but here, looking at issues of abortion, uh, gun control, gay rights issues, um, and then here also examining the contract with America. Um this one is uh, it's fantastic. We make use of the web archive, which if you've, if you've never used this here, you can go look at uh, what the House of Representatives page looked like uh, back in 1999. You can tell your students, indeed, this is what the internet looked like uh, once upon a time. But to have your students go through uh, and do an analysis here. Um, I mean, one of the one of the misnomers um, and and sort of pieces of, of legend and lore from this election is that the contract with America is is what may have run won the election for the Republicans. Uh, even though uh, you know this was this was released uh, only about three weeks before the elections, most of of you know the the results had probably been baked in at that point. But here to, to go through and analyze what sort of reforms uh, did Republicans end up uh, calling for once they took power? Uh, what sort of acts did they, uh, did they introduce? And what ultimately happened to some of those? We also, oh, we'll go back here uh, to, to check out a, a couple more. So that was 66 and 94. We have some other things here uh, in the collection, um, including... Um, and I know, saw Rebecca Theobald uh, is in the audience with us tonight. Um, this was a film looking at gerrymandering um, and redistricting that we we produced or updated last year, uh, and then partnered with GeoCivics to do some outreach and a and a webinar. Um, and this one, you know, sort of helps us understand uh, and helps your students create their own opinion about what criteria should matter most when we decide how to draw district lines. Um, And so here, uh, you can have your students as they go through. um, There's some activities here where they can draw districts in their own state, um, where they can uh, look at different models of of how uh, different states choose to draw their lines and engage in redistricting and, in some cases, gerrymandering. We also, in this collection, not only is the battle for votes gerrymandering, but uh, what would an elections collection be uh, without something that looked at campaign finance? So here, uh, looking at this connection between Watergate-era reforms, that's our look back in history, to uh, the aftermath of the Citizens United decision, Uh, and what does that mean for for what uh, candidates and others uh, can do. Um, And here we have a, we have a number of different here. I'll take you to the midterms collection here. We have a number of different uh, FRQs. Again, if you're an AP government teacher uh, a lot of these are ready to go and to be used in class. Um, So if we scroll down to our our gerrymandering one we have uh, both a concept application FRQ along with uh, a SCOTUS FRQ looking at Shaw v. Reno. Um, So here, uh, it follows sort of the, the you know, the tried and true uh, layout of, of the FRQ that your students will notice, uh, except, you know, it starts with have them watch the video to provide some some background knowledge. And then uh, Shaw v. Reno is the case, the required case that they ought to know. And here's an excerpt from Thornburg v. Jingles uh, that provides the comparison uh, and then the sort of three-part questions that go with it. We did uh, for the SCOTUS ones. They they do include uh, a rubric. So uh, if you're if you're worried about like oh man how am I gonna grade this we we've got you covered. But but here's the kicker: uh, if you're gonna use these, go make a copy and uh, remove the the rubric before you share it with students. Here it's it's on the last page, but but definitely ready ready to go for you. We also uh, have like I said uh, a brand new Supreme Court collection as well. Um, with, uh, with a film that is, could not be more timely. Um, so you know, if you are interested in engaging your students with something that happened, well, yesterday, uh, you can you could show this brand new film of ours uh, that looks at the current case before the Supreme Court about affirmative action. So it not only puts the students for fair admission cases into context, but takes a historical look back uh, to To try to help students understand, you know, what what are some of the intricacies of this debate about affirmative action? And this is another one. It has uh, a full lesson and student activity to go with it. Uh, there's there's actually a, a longer case excerpt uh, that students can use, and uh, some directions on how to teach your students how to do a case brief. How do you analyze a primary source like a Supreme Court case? Uh, and and have them go through and conduct that analysis. Figure out what are the things that you want a student to pick out uh, while reading a Supreme Court case. Um, we also have another brand new film released just last week uh, that looks at the the aftermath and the legacy of the Korematsu decision. Uh, sort of asking the question: What do you do with a with a court case that? Uh, even the current chief justice of the court has said it was wrong when it was decided. Uh, what do we do with that, and how does it impact our notions of of justice and and how to achieve justice? We have a, a number of other uh, ones that n- number of other films and lessons in this collection that will be uh, excellent and timely for you to use uh, in your class as well. Um, so in total here um take a look we've got uh we have ones connected to the pentagon papers uh desegregation and busing bush v gore if you're uh, eager to relive that as well uh we we have you covered um, and so you can find all of these. Uh, I put a link in the chat. Let me see if I still have it there. This will get you directly to our full library. See, so actually, Felice just put it in as well. Um, so you can find all of these different collections. And then uh, I know our time is running very, very short. So the, the last thing I'll say is uh, to, to connect with us best, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. My, my promise to you is I send one email a week because uh, I know if I send more than that, you probably won't read it. Um, so I send you one email a week that says, "Here's what's new from Retro Report. Here is uh, new films, new lessons and resources, upcoming events, webinars, things like that." So uh, you, if you're staring at your screen right now, you can uh, you can snap a picture of the QR code, or you can go to the link. It's bit.ly/rrnewsed. So that's what we got. I, you know, Mark good for you. I'm happy that that Cato has you roped in, that you are willing to read that news every single day. Uh, I, you're a better man than I. So uh, that's what I have. I am happy to, to answer any questions in the one minute we have remaining, but uh, I know it's a, a Tuesday, it is a school night, uh, and November is a busy time for folks. Waiting with bated breath for questions.
2: Uh,
0: Dave, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, As usual, a fantastic set of resources that you're sharing. Really appreciate both the the time that you talked to talk a little bit more about uh, what RetroPort has available and some of the fantastic ways that teachers can bring this to the classroom. Uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that the Sphere team chat hasn't been lighting up with how excited the teachers on the team uh, are about having... Uh, wishing they had these resources when they were still in the classroom. So, uh, thank you again for everything, Dave, and the conversation. And just as with the panel presentation earlier, we'll be sure to pull a handful of those links together for all of you who are joining us here tonight, uh, as we send out the professional uh, professional development certificates after this session. So, uh, fret not; you will have all of that in front of you. Uh, Dave, any final words for the uh, for the group?
5: Uh, thank you for having me, and I, I look forward to to working with you folks and and all of you teachers in the audience uh, in the future. So thank you.
0: Excellent. Well, with that, uh, thank you all for for staying up late and joining us tonight. Hopefully, you've had a chance to relax a little bit post Halloween, and uh, you haven't quite yet hit the the heaviest of time leading up to the end of the semester. So thank you for joining us. And as a, a brief heads up, we are our next webinar is likely to be December thirteenth. Uh, with iCivics in a conversation about Bill of Rights Day. So uh, keep an eye out for more information about that coming soon. But with that, thank you all for joining us tonight. Have a great evening. We'll talk to you all again soon.